Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back and welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Mark Bubbs and this is season number six. Today I'm chatting with one of my favorite authors. I met him a few years back in Chicago at Soldier Field at a sports performance conference and thoroughly enjoyed his first book, Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. So I'm really excited for today's conversation with bestselling author Eric Barker to chat about his new book, Plays Well with Others, a cure-all for our increasing emotional distance and loneliness, and really a thoroughly entertaining read to help build better connections and friendships. Let's be honest, this is an area, one of the first things coaches, performance staffs, and athletes talk about when we talk about high-performance culture is connections. And so tremendous insights here today from Eric. And on an individual level, you know, in the backdrop of the last two years of pandemic with social isolation increasing dramatically, really a very timely book as well. Before we get started, Athlete Performance Nutrition is excited to announce a free online event, Football Performance Nutrition, on June 23rd and 24th of 2022. Get up to speed on the latest research and cutting edge insights in American football with talks from leading experts in the NFL and NCAA. Join us for this free event. Just head over to performancenutritionpodcast.com forward slash football and sign up in the big blue box. That's performancenutritionpodcast.com forward slash football to register and get access to this free event. All right, let's get rolling. My conversation with author Eric Barker. Eric, really appreciate you carving out some time today. Oh, it's fantastic to be here, man. Well, listen, I, I just want to dive right into this. I mean, you know, your new book coming out, Plays Well With Others, is definitely a very timely book, as we were discussing here before the, <laughs> before the interview. What was the impetus for writing this book for you? I think the impetus for me is I, I've never been great with relationships. I'm definitely more on the introverted side. In terms of the big five personality traits, they, they talk about one of them is agreeableness. And from zero to 100 uh, on agreeableness, I scored a four. Uh, so not, not, not exactly a, a super social guy, but then it was, it was really crazy because I had decided this, closed the book deal, and literally two weeks later, uh, California, where I live, locked down uh, for the pandemic. And this, wow. it took on a whole new meaning for me. All of a sudden, I realized, you know, this wasn't just an abstractly helpful book on the social science of improving relationships. All of a sudden, it was like, people are really going to need this. Like, this is this is probably going to be the primary issue people are dealing with for the next few years. 100%. And I mean, in the competitive space, I mean, I've heard a lot of psychologists say that competitiveness you know, the more competitive we are, then the more disagreeable one is. So there's probably some good competitives in there. But circling back to the pandemic, obviously, yeah. major challenge across the world. Um, but as I was saying earlier, a client of mine, she's a divorce lawyer, and she said she's never been busier in her 25 years of practice. And I noticed in your book, you, you know, you, you cite some research from uh, John Gottman talking about how the first three minutes of a marital argument, he could predict over 90% accuracy, I think it is, you know, what the outcome was. Can you share uh, some insights there? Yeah, I mean, this was one of the biggest insights, you know, I found that people can put to use immediately, which is that uh, John Gottman, who's like a legend, you know, in terms of 
social science and marriage and relationship. I'm going to get a full back tattoo of John Gottman's face. Like this guy really, (laughs) he really knows his stuff. And like what he found was that the first three minutes of an argument could predict with 96% accuracy how the rest of the argument would go and how it would end. And not only did it predict the argument, it also was predictive of divorce. And so just the issue being, if you're going to raise a problem with your spouse, your partner, if it's going to potentially be something you know could could get difficult, it's like just calming down, not 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 firing with both barrels immediately, <laughs> you know, not pointing fingers and saying you and, you know, just raising the issue, calm, politely, even in a friendly way. It's it's not a personal attack. It's a problem to be solved. That can yes. make such a huge difference. And, you know, it's like very often we're impulsive. We want to get out there. But it's like by just being calm, nice about raising issues it makes a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing that we're that's pattern oriented, that just seeing three minutes of this back and forth exchange can yield such <laughs> accuracy in terms of the outcomes. You know, is there... Again, some insights there and just in terms of you kind of touched on a little bit. I mean, we tend to sort of point fingers. We talk about you versus me. Like, what are some of those those issues that tend to just light us up into that real defensive mode or attack mode? You know, Gottman has what he calls his four horsemen, which in terms of romantic relationships, uh, you know, the, the things that are most predictive of divorce, like over 80%. And those are criticism, defensiveness, uh, contempt, and stonewalling. And basically, you know, we're... We're all, unfortunately, familiar with them. Um, You know, criticism is like complaining, actually, in a marriage or relationship isn't actually a problem. It doesn't actually. Complaining is like it's actually necessary because shouting matches only predict divorce 40 percent of the time. Usually what happens is people start stop talking and start leading separate lives. And that's what usually precedes divorce. So complaining is not a problem. Criticism is when you make the complaint personal. Criticism is when it's one thing to say you didn't take out the trash. It's another thing to say you didn't take out the trash because you're an idiot or you didn't take out the trash and you always do this and I can't rely on you. Once the complaint becomes personal, it's criticism. Criticism's bad. Stonewalling is just when you shut down. When the other person raises an issue and you just shut down, tune out, you know, that does not allow for good back and forth. Defensiveness is whenever, you know, your partner raises an issue and you're, well, you, oh yeah, but you, and it's yeah. as opposed to listening, taking it in. And then contempt is the worst of all. Contempt is the most predictive thing of divorce. And that is anything that demonstrates you think you're on a higher plane than your partner, that you're dismissive of them, that you think you're better than them. John Gottman describes that as sulfuric acid for love. Just, just don't do it. Wow. Well, I mean, again, in high performance, coaches have a divorce rate that's, I don't know the statistics, but seemingly higher than the average in terms of when we look at pro sport, college sport, uh, it's a challenging profession. You know, there's a lot of moving around. It's challenging in the family, uh, performance staff as well, not not just the coaches. Um, Before I dive in a little bit more there, if we think of pandemic, we think of sort of you know, Netflix and red wine at night and the book, you know, and this of course applies to performance staff and coaches and the rest of us and our loved ones, but you know, Netflix and red wine at night, is this, is this the kind of date that's going to reignite uh, one's, you know, connection with their partner or are there better strategies when you're looking at the oh, This is 
one of the other really big insights in terms of romantic relationships is that they they did a, a really big study a while back that had people go on dates and they, the dates could be exciting, like something that was fun, like going to a concert, roller coasters, horseback riding, you know, or a date that was pleasant. Go to a movie, go to dinner, hang out, get a pizza. And man, did pleasant lose. You know, ex- <laughs> excitement is really key because the thing is that we, we always think it's like we're in love with the other person. The other person is in love with us. And that's absolutely true. And that's great. But it, we don't exist in a vacuum. You know, it's like one of the things is when you first started dating somebody, you know, you did all this exciting stuff. You went out, you went to places, you tried to find cool things to do. And we usually think like, oh, you know, that's something you do in the beginning. It's like, no, that was part of the reason you fell in love. There's a there's a concept in psychology called emotional contagion. And basically it's that emotionally you're affected by what's around you. You know, if you're at a party, you feel upbeat. You know, if mm-hmm. you're around the house and it's quiet, you kind of get sleepy. And we can leverage that in relationships. If you make sure that, you know, your, your date night or your whatever is something fun, is something exciting where the environment is going to cause an emotional rise in you. Like I said, whether it's, you know, you go out horseback riding, roller coasters, whatever. If it's doing something that is emotionally getting rise, you are going to associate that, like Pavlov, you're going to associate that with your partner and that can keep relationships alive when it's night after night of Netflix and wine. Well, I hope those Netflix movies are really exciting because if, if yeah. they're not, you know, you can do this thing. Many people are familiar in relationships called getting bored. And that's not a prescription for success. I was going to say with sort of the remote working transition that we're going through out of this uh, pandemic, we're now, I forget what the statistics were, but I think businesses predicted only 20% of people would want to work from home post pandemic. And it's something like over 50% or 60%. And so remote working is, is obviously here to stay. And with that is, you know, more time spent in the home and and it's harder to kind of potentially, if you're not being more proactive, do some of these things. And, you know, you talk about in the book, how close to 70% of marital issues actually never get resolved. And, you know, is it really that idea of, it's not what you talk about, it's, it's, it's how you talk about it. I mean, you touched on that before, but could you, could you shed some light? Yeah, the, the issue is that, like, basically, it, it, it sounds depressing to a lot of people up front that literally 69% of serious marital issues never get resolved. And that's often because there's differences in, you know, fundamental values uh, about things. But that actually doesn't have to be a problem. That 69% stat is true for happy relationships and unhappy relationships, because what's critical isn't necessarily solving those problems. It's not resolution of conflict. It's regulation of conflict. It's they may differ from you on this. It's like, how do you handle it? Do you treat them as the enemy, as the opposition, as somebody who has stupid ideas? Or do you find a way where you can both kind of honor both of your values? And that's what's really critical is people get too focused on, we need to solve this, we need to fix this. And certainly with some issues you do, but with a lot of the stuff you, you don't. And it's that tone, that, that attitude that you come to unsolvable problems with that can really make the difference where getting to know your partner, one of the other things that Gottman talks about is love maps, which is basically just understanding where your partner's coming from, understanding that to them, you know, taking out the trash, is symbolic of love 
To you, it's just an errand. Once you understand, oh, to them, this is really important, then you can start to say, oh, like they don't see this the same way I do. I don't have to agree with them, but if I can respect that, then we can get along better. So it's really, it's that issue of tone. It's that issue of just kind of respecting the perspective as opposed to always trying to solve things. It just makes a tremendous difference because there's always going to be stuff you di disagree about. And if you turn everything into the end of the world, then you know, there's not hope versus, you know, just trying to regulate the conflict, understand where they're coming from, find a way to honor both your values. All that sounds tremendous. The, the question again comes back to those competitive individuals when we see the athletes yeah. and the coaches. You know, what are some of those strategies that help us to gain a little bit more of that perspective? To to your point, to not think like everything's a competition then between partner, yeah. um, you know, spouse and, and whatnot. Yeah, it's like if you're somebody, I can imagine for 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 coaches, it's like you're always focused on improvement, on on getting better, and that often means you're hyper focused on the negative. Because how do you get better? You bring the negative up, mm. you know, and it's like that can mean you're kind of training yourself for that. And, and, and again, in terms of things where there's clean, measurable improvement and performance in sports and other arenas, it's a great perspective to have, you know, in relationships, you know, again, you've got some idiosyncratic stuff where people just see things, their definition of love, their definition of marriage. You know, why do, why do couples have so many arguments about about money? And it's because, again, values. Money is a metric of what you value mm -hmm. and you value different things. You're going to spend money on different things. So it's really critical to just first and foremost, understand your partner's perspective where it's like, they don't see this like I do. Their attitude isn't, we need to get better by 10% in our relationship. You know, their attitude is I want to chill. And if you realize where that comes from, oh, my partner's a little more neurotic than I am. They get stressed out quicker than I do. If I'm push, 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 all that's going to do is increase the stress. I don't act like that. They do. So I need to think about that in terms of how to regulate the conflict to understand that they don't see this like I do. They're not pushing for constant improvement. You know, it's like to just kind of take a step back and say, how are we going to do this? It's more of a negotiation. You know, you don't want to be pounding the table. You want to understand what they value, what you value, and see where you can meet in the middle. Interesting, obviously, with coaches because they're, they're players they tend to do well with that or in that sort of context it's amazing how environment can shift a lot of these 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 circumstances and the fact that they're not and to your point it's there's different measurables and, and we're trying to raise up the negatives and so when we when we swivel and pivot over to home life and just the complex nature of it where as you mentioned you know even defining love i mean from a scientific standpoint is, is yes. <laughs> tricky well, there, is, there is a diff there is a shift there because as a coach you are in generally you know a position of superiority you know mm -hmm. that is not the right analog for marriage marriage you are peers and so again kind of like i said the contempt issue the the big, biggest predictor of divorce is seeing yourself as better than greater than it's like you're 50 50 partners in a marriage so to to carry that coaching model over is I can tell you what to do. I know better. It's like, that's not a perfect analog. The, the first thing I talk about in the introduction to the book was to, to better understand dealing with people. Uh, I actually uh, went on uh, training with the NYPD hostage negotiation team. And, you know, it was amazing. It was really, really 
super impressive and I'm hearing about active listening. And my first reaction was, oh, fantastic, active listening. I, I just watched that, you know, in this simulation, I watched that. You got people to put their guns down and like surrender to the police. That's all I need. And what did the negotiators tell me after we were doing, like, yeah, this doesn't work with your spouse. And I was like, I was like, what? I was like, what? I was like, come on, guys. I need, I need stuff that makes for good sound bites. Yeah. And they're like, they're like, this doesn't work with your spouse. They're like, because again, that issue of with active listening, you know, if you're a hostage negotiator, if you're a therapist, the problem is out there. You're a third party. So the, the problem of, oh, the hostage taker, oh, that your spouse didn't take the trash out. It's different when somebody's pointing the finger at you saying you didn't take the, I'm angry with you. Like the hostage taker, the therapist, they're outside of the equation. So in a marriage, it's between, it's between you and them. And again, if you see them as they're your client or they're the athlete and you're the coach and you get to tell them what to do, it's like, yeah, that might work better with parenting. But with marriage, you have to use a different structure. That's really, really interesting. And if we come back to what you mentioned previously around sort of changing up the environment, you know, going to a concert, going to something exciting, yeah. makes me think of uh, Pippa Grange, sports psychologist for England football, talked a few years ago when England was getting ready for the for the World Cup and had a nice run all about building trust in the players. And, and she wanted to, in order to facilitate that, you know, two key components for her were, were being authentic, you know, being your true self. And of course, showing some vulnerability, you know, they were going off Absolutely. like camping and they were going to, you know, tell some, reveal some things about themselves, you know, to be able to show a bit of vulnerability uh, to build some trust. And of course, you know, you talk about University of Pennsylvania professor Robert Garfield talking about, you know, not opening up, prolong some of these sort of minor illnesses and even things, if we think of our coaches again, or, you know, busy executives or high performers, increases that likelihood of things like heart attack. You know, can you touch on that? Yeah, I mean, two of the critical things in terms of, you know, friendship was, you know, time, spending time together. The biggest thing friends actually argue about is that issue of spending time together. And the other thing is vulnerability, because we have this attitude, especially when making new friends, we got to impress people. We got to show them that we're high status, we're successful, and that actually harms friendships. And then, you know, when we're trying to make a new friend, you know, very often we've all been there. You're getting along, you know, you're, you're clicking, you're at that surface level, but you can't deepen it. For some reason, you can't break through to that next level. And that's where vulnerability comes in, where it's kind of like being able to expose more of yourself, being able to show more of yourself, being human, being relatable. Now the other person doesn't feel like they have to be proving themselves to you. You know, by my whole book, the focus, the drive of it is looking at the maxims that we grew up with regarding relationships. And then I stress test each one of them. So, you know, is a friend in need, a friend in need, does love conquer all? And the thing with friendship, you know, where do we go to? Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. Mm -hmm. And social science has tested everything he said. And for the most part, you know, he was right. For the most part, those are but not everything. And what they found was that a lot of the things that Carnegie recommends, they work in the beginning. They work in the introduction, hi, how are you? But they don't deepen things. And to really get that, that depth is when somebody feels like they understand where you're coming from. And part of that is, is weaknesses. And when we don't feel like we can share our weaknesses, how close can you feel to someone if you, don't, you can't share your problems? 
if they can't understand your problems. It's like, that's really critical. We're just reluctant to do it. And what I say in the book, I call it the scary rule. I say, basically, if it scares you, say it. You know, you could be incremental. You, could, you don't need to confess. You don't need to confess any murders at Christmas dinner. You know, like, I mean, but incrementally, you know, reveal a little bit more of yourself than you normally would feel comfortable doing and then look for reciprocation. You know, do they open up about some of the things they've been struggling with? And that actually is what deepens and builds relationships. But nobody tells us this. And, you know, as people get busy in midlife, whether they're coaches, athletes, again, people work at nine to fives, those friend circles get tougher to connect with because just time and things like that. And so, as you mentioned, when we're making sort of new friends, and you see this with a lot of my male clients, mm -hmm. especially, again, the sort of higher achievers or see themselves in that way, that idea of even taking that first step to show vulnerability is is a long way down the list. I mean, to your point, they sort of default to whether consciously or unconsciously to, to talking about, you know, achievements or, or whatnot. Yeah. Is there sort of a first step or a way, you know, a, an entry point into starting this sort of process for people who really is almost a 180 for them in terms of how they would operate? No, it's a real issue. And there is some insight into how to handle this from organizational behavior. Um, truth is, you know, it's like there's, there's what's called the beautiful mess effect which is that we're always terrified that if somebody knows we have a weakness, if somebody knows we're struggling with something, that they're not going to like us, so they're going to reject us. And the truth is, you know, that's all going on in our head. But when you flip it, usually when somebody reveals a difficulty, something they're struggling with, we don't usually tell, oh, I got to get away from this guy. Like that, that's, that's not how we usually react. We usually, you know, are sympathetic. We usually go, oh, that's not a big deal. But when it's us, we feel like it's a higher bar. But in organizational behavior and for leaders, and this, this would certainly apply to coaches as well, a good safe way to start down the path to vulnerability is, you know, rather than opening up and saying, I'm going to be vulnerable, I'm a terrible coach, you know, that, that would not be a great idea, you know, but you can reveal some vulnerability, some weakness in an area that's separate, that's unrelated. You know, it's like for a coach to be awesome at their job, to be really good at working with athletes and to say, hey, you know, it's like being a good dad has you know been difficult for me. That doesn't threaten their ability to do their job, their prestige in terms of their profession, their ability to work with athletes. That's something where people can relate to that. People can understand that you're open, you're opening up, but you're not in any way reducing your status or ability in people's eyes as a coach. Great advice, and it's it's amazing how obviously like everything else, it uh, takes repetition and engaging in the process because it is you know that connection which we'll talk about here in a minute. You know, community connection, loneliness; these are real issues in terms of of health and wellness. Um, staying on the coaches for a minute, I was writing about uh, NFL coaches and you know the rise in terms of well, coaches in any sport really. NBA, we see it as well. You know, whether it's Teron Lou, Steve Clifford, you know, struggling with lack of sleep and struggling with hypertension and prediabetes and really taking a toll physically. And, you know, you write about in your book that there's pretty much, you know, two things that we can uh, that will predict whether or not you'll be alive one year after you have a heart attack, which might surprise people. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's Robin Dunbar, who's, you know, famous for creating the Dunbar number, which, you know, is basically how the circles are circles of friendship 
are like the size of the circles are eerily are eerily similar that human beings are like wired for that uh he did that research and you know basically when it came to recovering from a heart attack the two things were you know were don't smoke and do you have good friendships and you know obviously other stuff matters but he was like the delta between those two and everything else was enormous and you you see this in the data come up again and again you know, if you look at uh, women who are recovering from uh, breast cancer surgery, um, you know, how well they did, oddly enough, totally uncorrelated with whether they had a spouse. It was number of close friends. Men recovering from a heart attack, again, spouse didn't matter. It was, you know, close friends. You know, there's a, re there's a study out of UC Berkeley that basically said, you know, in terms of health and longevity, relationships were second only to genetics in terms of health and longevity prediction. Obviously, those other things matter, but you know, our relationships are so critical. We forget, we kind of take it for granted. And in terms of the happiness aspect, there's an economic study that basically having solid relationships was the equivalent of making an extra $131,000 a year, you know, which that's Try asking your boss for a hundred and thirty-one thousand dollar raise and see how well that goes over. You know, there's 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 other things we we forget about it. We kind of take it for granted. You know, we forget because there's been an explosion of social science research into happiness. You know, over the past decade or so, and the mistake we make. Uh, Brett Ford, she's a researcher at UC Berkeley. She said that one of the biggest mistakes we make is we think about being happier and we say, what can I do? What do I have to accomplish? What do I need to get? Mm. And the truth is we need to turn the lens and stop thinking about me do, me get, and think about our relationships because so much of it comes from that. If we're not considering other people, our health, our happiness, those methods are going to fail because, they're, because how the people around us are so integral to success in that arena. Yeah, alcohol is an interesting one. Going back to the start of the conversation there, when we look at you know all these studies, whether alcohol is good for us or bad for us, and these days we can say, well, it's tough to tough to say whether alcohol is really good for you. You know, uh, there are potentially some benefits. The benefits that we do see, however, typically come because they can't really tease out. If we do see benefit, it's the fact that you're having a drink with friends and you're laughing, exactly. and stories and everything else. So I always find it interesting on the medical intakes. You know, if you sort of have a few questions about alcohol and all the ones below the line that are really important all revolve around drinking by yourself at home, you know, that's oh, that, that becomes the exactly. red light for the docs and the medical staff to say, I think we yeah. might have an issue here. Oh, no, I mean, that that's the other thing. Obviously, smoking is terrible for you, you know, but what is interesting is, mm. you know, when you chop up the data enough for most people who smoke, smoking is not a social activity. So you don't have to tease that out like with alcohol. So smoking, it's obviously just bad. With alcohol, yeah, you get those weird blips in the data because so much of drinking, you know, is done socially that, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, hey, it's like, yes, yeah, there's some health negatives, but you're if, it, if it's spending your time with friends, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna need some better statistics in here. <laughs> Yeah, especially when we look at those European countries, because it is more around sitting around the table and, and chatting, whereas, you know, in North America and the UK, we've turned it into a sport more than anything else in terms of <laughs> getting, getting through it. But if we pivot here a little bit and talk, rather than the coaches, the younger athletes, you know, yeah. it's, it's interesting now in the NBA, even we've got young athletes and there's a growing concern over 
you know, mental health and, and, and yeah. loneliness and some aspects of anxiety that you'd think, Hey, this young athletes achieved their lifelong goal. You know, you'd think yeah. they'd be on top of the world and, you know, today's society, obviously we're supposed to be more connected than ever. We've got social media, but increasingly, you know, we're feeling disconnected. You touch on this a lot in the, in the new book. Can you share a few insights with us? Yeah. I mean, what I found that was just blew me away was that basically John Cacioppo uh, was a neuroscientist. He did a lot of uh, did a lot of research on loneliness. And what he found is that on average, lonely people don't spend any less time with other people than non-lonely people do, which is kind of mind blowing. But once you think about, you know, lonely in a crowd, we've all felt lonely in a crowd. So what's going on there? If lonely people don't spend less time with people, if you can feel lonely in a crowd, what's going on here? And that's what you realize when you, you study loneliness, because when we look at the history of, of loneliness, uh, there was a, a historian out of um, the University of York, and basically, uh, yeah, Faye Albregetti. And what she found was that basically, if you look before the 19th century, you know, the word lonely is used in texts, but it doesn't mean like sad and depressed. Literally, the book Frankenstein, the original is the first book and then, you know, to use the word lonely as a negative, usually lonely, it may, meant isolated, but it didn't. And loneliness was almost never discussed. You heard discussions of solitude, which mm. is a positive. So how does all this come together? The issue is that loneliness really isn't, a, loneliness is a subjective feeling. It's something we feel inside of us. You know, you can be, you can have solitude, nobody's around, but you feel good. You know, you can have loneliness, but you can be lonely in a crowd. So what's going on? What's going on is loneliness is how you feel about your relationships. If you feel like, hey, I'm apart from people, but they love me. They care about me. I'm part of a group. I'm part of a, you know, a religious community. I'm part of a team. Yeah. Then you don't have to feel lonely. And by the same token, if you don't feel part of a group, if you're not part of a religious community, if you're not part of a team, if you don't feel like you have good relationships, you can be lonely in a crowd because loneliness is a subjective feeling. It's how you feel about your relationships. And before the 19th century, most people were embedded in local communities. Mm -hmm. People couldn't live on their own. People were part of religious traditions much more than they are today. People, there was, you know, often strong, for better or for worse, there was strong nationalism. You know, there were, there were communities People needed to work together. So even if you were apart physically from people, you still knew that I was a member of this unit. I was a member. I was a contributing part. You know, we don't have that feeling as much today. Community is broken down. You know, it's like religious experience is broken down. We don't have that feeling. So when we're apart from people, we really feel like, you know, is anybody there? And the effects of loneliness on the brain are dramatic. I mean, loneliness basically increases like every negative health metric goes up, but the amount of stress that it causes to the brain, Cacioppo found was basically the equivalent of a physical assault. So like feeling lonely is, is the stress equivalent of being punched in the face, but it's really a subjective feeling. We need to feel that we are connected to others. Being around people is great, but we need to know that in our hearts, that other people are there and are thinking about us, even if they're not surrounding us right now. It's interesting when you touch on sort of just historically, because obviously before 
you know, when phones were still plugged into the walls, we, we, we had to sit and talk and, and, yeah. and be bored together, <laughs> you know, which, which doesn't happen now. Right. I mean, yeah. people, you're bored, you go straight to your phone. And I imagine obviously within a team, you could still, as you're alluding to, we, we don't, we could feel disconnected from the team if we're not, if we don't have that sort of bond, that relationship. Yeah. And I, I sort of find that aspect interesting because in today's younger athlete, obviously we're using tech as, as a vehicle to connect with them because that's how they communicate. But yeah. then there's, it's, it seems like a little bit more of a nice edge in terms of being able to become more isolated in a sense rather than, than connecting with the team and feeling a part of the team. No, it's, it's really critical. And that's why we keep seeing studies where social media is bad. Well, actually, social media helps. Mm-hmm. Oh, the Internet's bad. Oh, oh, actually, there's good stuff. And part of that is that, you know, if you use Facebook, you know, or Instagram instead of friends, it's a negative. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of us increasingly are doing. We're having parasocial relationships. Re- research the parasocial relationships first started in the mid 20th century because TV TV became the friend because TV is a really easy friend because you, you, you get that feeling of community, but you can turn it off whenever you want. And now, you know, people are using social media like that. And the problem, you know, if you use Instagram to message back and forth and make a time to get together with friends, Instagram's a positive, no doubt. If you use it instead of seeing friends, then it can be a, a real difficulty. But the, the bigger issue is, especially with the younger generation, is that whether if you're not careful, even if you're not trying to replace yeah. face-to-face relationships, you only have 24 hours in a day. And so uh, one researcher did a study that basically every email that you respond to takes one minute away from social time. Wow. And so you can basically think the more time I'm spending on the device, responding to email, doing that, that is usually coming out, whether you're thinking about it or not, it's usually coming out of the social budget. And so, again, even if you're using it responsibly, as that goes up, I mean, you know, if it comes out of sleep, that's not good either. But usually it's coming out of social time. So you are, even if you're not trying to, often replacing face to face with social media. And again, that's that's just not the same thing. There was research into cancer support groups online. And basically when you test cancer support groups that meet in person, they compared the two. And basically cancer support groups online, almost 90% of people reported feeling depressed. You test cancer support groups that meet face-to-face, those reporting depression was zero. There's a difference, you know, between the two. And if we're replacing it, even if it's not deliberate, it can, it can really cause problems for us. Yeah, it's almost alarming, isn't it, how the current is pulling us in that direction. But to your point, if we're aware of that, we can, we can swim upstream and uh, take advantage of the benefits. And a few years ago, I had a chance to interview uh, Igor Grossman, who's a, a behavioral psychologist, and talking a lot about wisdom versus intelligence. And he'd done this yeah. in interpersonal conflicts. And, Absolutely. And was talking about how in younger individuals, obviously individualism is on the rise, which meant there's more sort of independence, which is great. But on the flip side of that, there was more thinking about oneself and increases in things like narcissism and decreases in things like empathy, which is something that you touch on as well in the book. Could you share some of your insights? Yeah, I mean, narcissism in the 21st century, narcissism has been increasing faster than obesity. Wow. And now now that's saying something. Yeah. And basically, you know, when you see, especially among young people, you see the emphasis. The thing we're dealing with is that, you know, 
the research in popularity is really interesting because popularity makes us feel really good. But there's two ways to, to become popular. And one is status, which is being rich, being powerful, having influence, dominance. Um, that could be positive, but you can also get status through bullying and through other negative behaviors. The other way is likability. Those are the people who are warm, kind, supportive. And what you see is that people who get popularity through status, 10 years later, they're usually not very happy. They're not usually doing very well. And people who get uh, popularity through being likable, these are the people who have lives that are enviable, that thrive. And in the 21st century, we've seen this tremendous push where, especially with social media, getting likes, getting shares. Did everybody see my photo? Do I have more followers? It's becoming a competition, you know, and that is the path to status. Oh, I've got more followers than they do. That's status. That's not likability. And what we see is that generally doesn't lead to good things. It leads to narcissism, a focus on the self. And it becomes really tricky. There was one study I looked at where they asked middle school girls, uh, you know, what would you like to be when you grew up? And they gave them a few options. Would you like to be, you know, president of a university? Would you like to be a senator? Well, all those lost to 43% of the vote went to personal assistant to a movie star or a popular singer. Wow. Just access to fame, to status. And that, that doesn't lead to happiness. It certainly doesn't lead to community. And it leads to these sort of transactional, often parasocial relationships that really just don't improve our lives. And again, kind of like in the big picture, as you were mentioning earlier, the big picture, this causes the breakdown of community because we're thinking about me, me. We're not thinking about ourselves as one node in a greater network that's supporting one another. And so it's really problematic to that. And social media has been contributing you know, to that acceleration to rather than thinking about the warmth of likable relationships, we've often turned these things into a status competition. And over the long term, you know, for coaching, for teams, you want to win. For your personal life, you know, that's not going to lead to happiness. Yeah, I would say, obviously, you know, athletes, coaches, we're obviously we're pushing that competitiveness and with the younger Absolutely. athletes, the narcissism is increasing, you know, and if that's the environment that we're in and, and the devices are sort of amplifying that, you know, have you heard or come across strategies or ways that these things can be adjusted and algorithms improved to be able to, to kind of take the edge off that? I mean, absolutely. For, for individuals, you know, it's like, it is amazing where, you know, we've seen these precipitous drops, you know, in empathy and increased narcissism. But Shelly Turkle, who teaches at MIT, you know, she pointed to a study where they saw, you know, empathy levels come back up among children. You know what it was? It was a sleepaway camp where they didn't have their phones. Wow. You know, it was, and all of a sudden it came back up. Taking a step away from that, you know, we, we need to be able to do that because, you know, go, go, go and win. That's awesome in terms of competition, in terms of training. You need that. You also need to have people who know you, who like you for reasons other than you being number one. You know, and so to take a step back from social media and again, like we talked about earlier, to be vulnerable in your relationships, to, to open up and for people to feel like they know you, you know, that's what creates this empathy to focus on being likable, not being high status in your personal relationships, how you project yourself on the field, how you interact, you know, in terms of a competition, you know, that's awesome. You know, we need to be able to compete and do our best 
you know, when you're trying to win. But in our personal relationships, it helps to take a step back. That's just it. I mean, you know, for athletes, for coaches, it's all about relationships and about reading people, yeah. uh, teammates. But you you write about how reading people's body language, which is often something that's done in sport, is yeah. perhaps a little too overrated. You know, you talk about focusing in on, on the speech. So could you talk about that? I mean, some people are, are good, you know, are pretty good at, at reading people. Usually that's unconscious. When we consciously try and, you know, read people, we're really bad at it. <laughs> Nicholas Epley is a professor at University of Chicago. And basically, when we're interacting with strangers, we can effectively read their thoughts and feelings 20% of the time. One wow. in five. 80% of the time, you're wrong. With friends, we hit 30%. With spouses, we only hit 35%. So whatever you think your spouse is thinking or feeling, two-thirds of the time, you're wrong. You know, it's, it's, it's really tricky. You know, now we do pick up on cues from, you know, body language. And especially when we know someone, that can shift things. But all that's usually unconscious. When people think they're going to read a book and it's going to teach them how to dissect body language, there's a reason that there's never been a body language Rosetta Stone. Like, mm. it's too idiosyncratic. If I'm shivering, you don't know if I'm nervous or if I'm cold. Yeah. You know, it's like there's always context. And then, like I said, it's idiosyncratic. We usually, with strangers, we don't have a baseline. Maybe somebody always taps their fingers and that's what they do. Or maybe that's a sign that they're nervous. We don't know. So what, what really does delineate it one big difference is, like you said, is we get so much more from people's speech. When we hear someone, our ability to detect, you know, in terms of empathy and detect what they're thinking, drops a small amount. It's like when we, when we can't see them, we can still detect. When we can't hear them, it falls off a cliff. Wow. So speech is usually much better in terms of reading people. But the other critical aspect is really motivation. Usually we're very passive about it and our brains are very energy efficient, which is a polite way of saying lazy. So we don't usually, when we're focused, when we're trying to read the other person, you know, our brain gets really engaged. But usually, and this is where, this is where a little bit of competition comes in, you know, is, is if we feel like there's a gain or there's a loss involved, we become much better at reading other people because we're motivated. When people are on first dates, they read people better. Why? Because there's something well, to win high. or something to lose here. It's it's game day. You know, it's like when we're just idling by, you know, we don't do as well. There's a lot of other things that can help us read people better. And that is like using the environment, like for sports. If you're just having a cup of coffee with somebody, you know, you're only going to hear what they tell you. If you're playing football or, or basketball with them, you're going to see how they make decisions. You're going to see whether they're risk averse or not. You're going to see whether they cheat. You know, you're going to see a lot more about them by interacting with them involved in something. Another big factor can be other people. If you only spoke to someone when their boss was present, do you think that you would be getting a 360 degree view of who this person is? It's like, no. So there are a lot of factors. Usually we're bad at reading people, but there's a lot we can do to make other people more readable, to make them give off a stronger signal. And that's why, like I said, engaging with them in something that shows us their decision making, bringing other people into the mix, mentioning things that are a little more controversial or a little more 
to get them to react, that can give us a stronger signal because our reading skills are poor, but if we can get people to be more readable, then we can get closer to accuracy. Yeah, that's really fascinating because we hear a lot of examples in sport, or at least recently for myself, of, you, know, you get an athlete that has a certain body language and yeah. we tend to associate that type of body language with laziness or not being active enough when that could oftentimes it's just that individual's natural sort of demeanor and they actually do bring the energy and the focus whilst they're playing but because we have this idea in our minds of how we want someone to be or their body language to be to your point being able to spend more time with them connect with people talk with people we can start to better understand them rather than just making these these assumptions based on what we're seeing which not always easy well that ties in to the research on first impressions which is really interesting because when we're first meeting somebody first impressions it's a double-edged sword there's good news and bad news First impressions are surprisingly accurate. Roughly 70% of the time, the impressions we get are accurate of, of someone. If there's been studies shown where if you were to watch a video without sound of like a professor teaching a class, your judgment of whether they're a good teacher or not, like roughly 70% of the time, after just watching a minute, it's called thin slicing, would actually be pretty accurate on a number of variables. Roughly 70% of the time, we're really, we're really good. The only problem is that 30% of the time, you know, you don't want your kids to get D's. Mm. 70% is, is good, certainly better than chance. The issue is that the good side, we're usually right. The bad side is first impressions stick. They really stick. And if we want them to not stick and we want to stay open-minded, we kind of need to fight them a little bit because we usually make snap judgments and we stick with them. Yeah. And so the issue is kind of holding yourself accountable. If you get that impression, this guy looks lazy. Okay, wait, before you, before, you, before you slam the gavel like a judge, like, let me try and test this. Let me try and stress test this. Let me see if I can get him to react in a way that shows me, oh, that's, that's actually not the case. Let me try and test it. Let me hold myself accountable. Let me try and prove the opposite if I can. Because we got a 30% gap there where we're, we're not always right. And the other thing to keep in mind is with first impressions, if we get a negative one, somebody's having a bad day and you say, I'm not dealing with that person anymore. Well, now there's no chance for them to prove you wrong. So what that means is on average, your positive impressions are going to be, you know, end up being more accurate than your negative impressions. Cause you're gonna get a negative impression. I'm not gonna deal with them anymore. You never get a chance to test it again. Your positive impression, you hang out with them again. Oh, that person was just turning it on the first time I met him. Now, giving people a second chance is a good idea. You get more data, you can test it. Another piece of advice that comes from this is, by the same token, just like mom told you, do make good first impressions. Because like I said, they stick. So it's really, you know, don't, oh, they'll get to know me. It'll be fine. I'll just be myself. But you know what? Take the time. Think about how you want to be perceived and really put it out there because all the research shows we tend to lock onto those first impressions and we don't tend to change them, make the impression you want to make. Yeah. So, uh, so many great insights and points here. And, you know, your new book's pretty timely in a sense of obviously with the pandemic and, and, you know, relationships and the stress imposed on relationships. And then I, you know, even with thinking about sport of just that idea of being able to, what we've touched on here, communicating and being able to connect because what we often hear with the younger sports scientists, coaches, particularly on the performance side, is that the skill level is much, much higher than, than a generation ago. 
but the ability to kind of connect with the other coaches, to be able to relay the information, to be able to connect with the athlete, to actually execute, to put into, into practice your actual insights is, is an area that really needs to be uh, upskilled. And so I think it's, it's quite, uh, quite timely. And, you know, in writing the book, is there an area that surprised you or something that was you know, really stuck out over the process? Human beings are really complicated, but it was really interesting to see how important stories were beneath everything. When we get first impressions, we are telling ourselves a story about a person. We lock on to that. Usually it's right. It's not always right, but we tell ourselves a story about who this person is. With friendships, you know, it's like there is actually a story going on where Aristotle 2000 years ago said that a friend is another self. And the funny thing is, all the latest data basically shows you is right. The closer we are to someone, the more the Venn diagram overlaps. It is becomes harder for our brains to distinguish ourselves from our friends. Hmm. It, it takes longer. There are longer delays if I ask you, is that, is that a trait of your friend or a trait of you versus a stranger? We have the story that we and them are connected. In marriage, John Gottman... John Gottman's with over 90% accuracy, he's able to tell you if a couple will divorce in five years or not. And all that, believe it or not, comes down to one question, which is he asks the couple to tell their story. And if the couple tells their story and it's a story of kind of savoring the challenges, overcoming the difficulties, because there are always going to be difficulties, that's a really good sign. If it's like, yeah, it's fine. Oh yeah, we're in love versus we had some hard times, but oh my God, like, you know, we dealt with it. Now we laugh about it. I mean, we, we went through some stuff. That idea of reveling in, celebrating those challenges. And then in communities, so I talk about the final section of the book. You know, communities, it's all about a story. What's the story that unites us? What do we all believe? What do we all agree on to feel a part of something? You know, in every way, I was just surprised to see that made it easy for me writing wise thematically, but it was surprised to see that how much stories, you know, just it's part of the operating system of the brain. And you see this consistently through reading people, through friendship, through love, through community, that stories kind of underlie all of it. Yeah, it is amazing how even giving advice or tips, how just the story people can remember that five years from now and yet, yeah. you know, the list of things and items that you might've given them or whatnot go out the window, but a good story can, uh, you know, stick definitely sticks with them. Well, you know, listen, Eric, I appreciate you carving out some time today. You know, when is the book dropping and obviously, uh, you know, where can people pick it up? I imagine. Uh, plays well with others is the book and it's May 10th. Uh, it'll be available everywhere. You can get it on amazon.com. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting. Awesome. Well, listen, I look forward to diving in and uh, yeah, appreciate the time and insights. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. To watch the full video interview and short clips from this episode, check out our YouTube channel, Performance Nutrition Podcast. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. All that good stuff is a massive mission. Until next time, take care. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.